Open your Bibles, if you will, to uh, Romans chapter 6. <clears throat> In one sense, I, um, I, when I planned the Romans Bible study, I never planned for this to happen. And, um, <clears throat> but I guess it was kind of foolish to think that it wouldn't happen. And what I'm alluding to is, what, I, what I've been trying to do is spend... Um, a semester on each chapter, and it's broken down so wonderfully nice in the past that we would finish chapter one at the end of this and then move to chapter two after this. By semester, I mean you know from September to December and then from January to May, and it's really worked out very well up until now. Um, but we have completed chapter five, and we start chapter six tonight in the middle of a semester, and we will not conclude it by the end of the semester, and we'll have to conclude uh, Romans 6 in the fall, which in some ways is, you know, not altogether horrible. It just is nice to keep it in nice, precise, and cons- anyway, it didn't work. So um, uh, we begin tonight uh, a new chapter, chapter 6, and um, let me just read the two verses that are under our consideration tonight and will be under our consideration next week. And perhaps even the next. <clears throat> Probably not, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. Chapter 6 opens with this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now, guys, um, chapter 6 is probably the best-known chapter of the entire book of Romans. Now, you might find that a bit surprising. I might be a little wrong. Maybe maybe chapter 8 might nudge it out. But particularly in theological circles, chapter 6 is the most famous of all of the chapters... And the reason that it is, is because it has um, spawned the most controversy. Uh, It has spawned the most discussion. It has spawned movements, ladies and gentlemen. Absolute movements have come out of Romans chapter 6. And, I might add, they, they have sprung up basically over... At least in this translation, the, the words <clears throat> that are translated in verse 2, died to sin. Those three words have led to as much ink and as much um, theological wrangling as about anything that you know. Um, trust me, uh, I, if you, you're welcome to go start looking, but believe me, ladies and gentlemen, they write volumes on chapter 6. The subject of chapter 6, and as I say this, I'm going to disagree with what I'm about to say, but in, in, what, is, what is normally thought of, or the, the category that is normally assigned to chapter 6, is that chapter 6 is now dealing with the subject of sanctification. Um, I, I have a little bit of a problem with that um, because I, I, I don't want to... The way I'm going to try to teach this, uh, this chapter to you is not that it is 
so much and a, a, another subject that Paul is dealing with, and uh, he has marked it off with this whole chapter 6 and going to talk to you about sanctification. It seems to me that it's far more natural to suggest that chapter 6 is the continuation of chapter 5. That is, it's the continuation of the same theme, or not the same theme, but it's an outgrowth of the theme that he uh, presented to you in chapter 5. I hope you remember, chapter 5 had some difficult parts to it, but primarily, one of the at least greatest applications of Romans 5 is the whole issue of assurance. Uh, what Paul was teaching is that we are so to be identified with Christ as we were identified with Adam. And because we didn't do anything to get into Adam, we didn't do anything to get into Christ. But the, there's great similarities between being in Adam and in Christ. <clears throat> I'm in Christ, and thus I am safe. And, and all of the assurance that comes out of um, being so solidly identified with Christ. Another reason that I, I would like for you to, in your minds, connect chapter 6 with chapter 5 really has to do with the opening question. <clears throat> he, he begins chapter 6 by asking, What shall we say then? Well, what shall we say then about what? Well, about what he has just been saying. Do you see what I'm saying? He opens chapter 6 by saying, what shall we say then? What is, he, what is he referring to? Well, what shall we say then about what I just said in the previous couple of sentences? Now, now you know, guys, I, I think you know, that um, this is a letter. This is a very lengthy letter uh, to the church at Rome. Uh, it does not contain, uh, in its original form, uh, versification, nor certainly it's not broken up into chapters. It's just one long letter after letter, or uh, letter of the alphabet after letter of the alphabet. Uh, usually, the words aren't even broken up. So to, to um, interrupt, uh, to, 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 to break it up into chapters is done for our convenience in terms of studying and memorizing it. That's so, but when you, so all I'm saying is, Paul is, is continuing in his line of thought... Uh, that he has just finished in chapter 5. One of the great themes of chapter 5 is assurance, and he is proceeding with that thought as it leads him into um, other applications and ramifications of that assurance that springs from justification, etc. Now, l- l- let me tell you how, um, how just kind of a panoramic view, which I hope will help you, um, Paul has worked out the doctrine of justification by faith over the span of four chapters. Chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. He then, in chapter 5, begins to deduce the things that come as a result of the doctrine of justification by faith. And one of those is safety. One of those is um, assurance. That's what he's doing in chapter 5. Paul is asserting in chapter 5 that because of what he has taught in chapters 1 through 4, Paul is asserting that our justification 
guarantees our final redemption. And thus, there is every reason in the world to enjoy the sweetness of being assured and having confidence. Now, that is an argument that he will not complete until chapter 8. And, and I want to show you something. If you'll just flip over a couple of pages to chapter 8, you notice that chapter 8 begins this way. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, do you see that that is the same theme of chapter 5? If I am correct, and we all know that I am, um, but <laughs> that's just a joke. Uh, if I am correct about what he is doing in chapter 5, and if in chapter 5, Paul is beginning to, to draw some deductions based on what he has taught in chapters 1 through 4, and one of those deductions is our safety and assurance. If that's what he's teaching in chapter 5, notice what he says in 8.1. It's the same thing. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm suggesting to you that what he is doing in chapter 5 is interrupted by chapter 6 and 7. And I'll show you that in just a second. But chapter, chapter the, the, what he is trying to develop in chapter 5 gets interrupted by chapters 6 and 7, and he returns to it in chapter 8. And we will return to his theme uh, of chapter 5 in a couple of years. <laughs> um, but we'll get to chapter 8 then, but that's when he returns to that theme of this, uh, the great ramifications of justification. Have I lost you yet? I mean, I hope I haven't. Chapters 1 through 4, he's pounding out the doctrine of justification by faith. Chapter 5, he says, okay, as a result of, of the doctrine of justification by faith, here are same, some things, some conclusions that you can come to safely. Then he gets distracted in chapters 6 and 7. And I'll tell you what that distraction is in just a second. But then he returns to that great theme of safety in chapter 8. And you see it opening so wonderfully before you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are safe now and forever. The same thing that he's been developing in chapter 5. But, um, as he closes off chapters, chapter 5, he makes this statement, go back with me to chapter 5, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Having said that, this great pastoral apostle um, realizes that something that he's just said might give rise to a misunderstanding. That is, Paul understands that what he has just said in verses 20 and 21 could very easily be misunderstood. And so what he, and particularly by Jews, 
realizing that what I've just said in 20 and 21 might be misunderstood by Jews, um, he then has to address the possible misunderstandings of his previous statement. And that's what he does in 6 and 7. Chapter 6 and 7. There are two possible issues, or two possible questions, or two possible misunderstandings, um, and both of them are related to the law. There are two possible misunderstandings, and the first one is, with all of these sweeping statements about grace that I have just made, with all, with all of this this superabounding grace that I've just taught you, there is then the uh, possible misunderstanding that indeed if we have swept away the law by grace, then would that not then encourage people to sin even in a greater way than they had heretofore? That is one of the possible misunderstandings. This man, Paul, is teaching us that my works do not in any way contribute to my salvation. Isn't that what he taught? Everybody get that? Okay, if that's what he's teaching, for heaven's sakes, then why don't we just go sin far more than we ever have? So that if if because of sin, grace is abounded, then why don't I sin some more so that grace can abound even further? That's the possible misunderstanding of what he has taught you. That's one of the possible. And that's what he addresses in um, chapter 6. The other possible misunderstanding has to do with the role of the law at all. Okay, if the law doesn't save me, then what kind of what kind of role does it play? Is there any use for it at all? And that's what he deals with in chapter seven. And then in chapter eight, he returns to his theme. <laughs> so do you, do you see at least somewhat of a panoramic view? He's de- he's developing something. He's developing the uh, he's drawing he, he is deducing things that grow very safely out of justification by faith. He makes a statement in verses 20 and 21 and realizes there are some possible misunderstandings that might grow out of what I just said. So he therefore dedicates chapter 6 and chapter 7 to correct conceivable misunderstandings. And the first misunderstanding is, okay, this man has just said that law works or works according to the law don't have anything to do with my salvation. Therefore, and, by the way, not only do they not have anything to do, but he just told me that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Therefore, um, if that's true, then I ought to sin some more so that grace can abound some more. And that's what he says in verse 1. Look at it. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, ladies and gentlemen, um, first of all, 
that position has a name. And it's a name that you need to know. And I've used it up on that board a dozen times. But if you have never yet gotten it, you need to get it now. It is the word antinomianism or an antinomian. I've said this. I know that some of you are tired of hearing it. But it's anti, against. The root of the word is a Greek word, nomos, which means law. Anti-law. An antinomian is one that says because of the rich provisions of grace, my lifestyle does not matter at all. And that is, the, that is the mindset. That is the position that Paul is addressing as we open up with chapter 6. As you can clearly see in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we sin? Shall we continue in sin? That grace may abound. Now he's going to answer that of course in verse 2. But that's the position. And that position has a name. It's called antinomianism. Now guys, today as I was sitting in my office, I was trying to think of, um, of a good illustration of an antinomian. And um, very frankly, I'm not around very many antinomians. And really, the antinomians that I'm around are not Christians. <laughs> They're the ones that says, you know... I'm going to live like I want to anyway. You know, there are no laws. I, it, it's really kind of an autocratic uh, kind of approach to life. I am the only law. Um, I, I'm self-law. But I did think of one. And, and I want to show it to you. And, I, and I'm going to engage you tonight. And, and uh, uh, I'm going to call upon you. This is very unusual for someone who is uh, as comfortable behind a lectern as I am to, uh, to engage you. But I, I, I want you to see something that was said to me by a man who has every right in the world to make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. He is a man that has some, some very um, precious things that are true to his life and uh, true about his life and um, could articulate the gospel for you in a heartbeat. But he is an antinomian. And I want to show you how it fleshed itself out. Okay? So, wake up and let's look. Take your Bibles and open them with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Now, what I'm trying to show you is what, what are some of the possible ramifications of being an antinomian. An antinomian is what Paul is addressing that he's against in, in, in um, Romans chapter 6. Alright, now guys, this is the parable of the sower. The parable of the four soils. Let me give you the parable real quickly because I think... I mean, is there anybody here who has not heard of the parable? Because I'll read the whole parable if we need to slow down to do that. Everybody's at least heard the parable. The parable starts like this. The, uh, the sower goes out to sow. It's a picture of Jesus in, in, in this agrarian society in which he uh, lived and ministered. 
it was a it was a wonderful parable uh, of a of a man with a bag stretched across, uh, you know, kind of like some of your purses, um, and it's full of seed. And he's walking through the fields, and he's sowing his seed. He's just throwing it all over the place, just throwing it everywhere, uh, in hopes of of course producing a crop. And what Jesus says is that that seed fell on four kinds of soil. Now that's the parable. Now, this is one of the parables. There are a couple of parables. There's maybe two or three parables in the New Testament that Jesus interprets for us. That is, we don't have to worry about our interpretation of the parables because Jesus interprets for us. Now, here's where I want to engage you. Are you ready? Are you with me? Are you awake? Um, just, just, just ask just some fundamental questions. Um, the sower is sowing seed. What is the seed. The Word of God. By the way, I'm asking you to draw upon the, the, the training and the teaching that you have had in the past. Okay? And I know that somebody has taught you the parable of the four soils before. Alright, so the sower is going out and he is sowing his seed in the field. What is the field? The world. Way to go. We are two for two here in this very intelligent uh, gathering of Christians. The the sower is out there sowing seed in the world, and the seed is the Word. Right. You're right on top of it. It it falls on four kinds of soil. Okay? Now, I'm going to let you off on some of the tough parts because we're not even going to discuss... Uh, number two and number three. All I want to ask you is, tell me, let's talk about the fourth soil. The fourth one, I tell you what, let me give you, let me give you the verse. Um, it would be, um, uh, verse 20. Yes, verse 20. Mark 4.20. Alright, now, let me read it to you. But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, and some a hundred. All right, just to answer that one for me for a second. Forget the other three. We're only talking about that one. Tell me, what kind of person is being described in soil number four? What? Christians. Christians. Is there anybody in the room... Is there anybody in the room that has trouble seeing that? Because I'll I'll try to make it clearer. But I think you've been taught that, and I think you've been taught consistently that that number four is a a Christian, bearing fruit and all that business. Any problems with that? We have agreement in the house. Is there anybody who would like to object? All right, good. Good. We, now, we're not going to do number two and three because we couldn't get agreement in the house on two and three, I promise you. But, um, um, I, you know, I know that you've been taught what two and three are, too. I, that's not my point right now. Let's go to number one. Soil number one. Let me tell you what language Jesus uses for soil number one. Soil number one is this seed that falls on the wayside, on the roadside, on the pavement. Do you see that? Somebody give me a verse. What verse is that? 
verse, well, is it four or five? Yeah. Uh, it's five. Oh, it's, is it five? Some told, no, 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 that's stony ground. It's four. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside. Now look. And the birds of the air came and devoured it. All right, guys. That's the parable now, okay? What did we say that the, that the seed was? And what happened to the seed? Yeah. It got eaten. It, got, it, what? it was taken away somehow. Uh, by birds. Uh, who's the birds? Nobody knows. Forget the birds. Uh, <laughs> but for somehow, the, the, the seed, the Word of God, didn't we agree? By the way, didn't we agree that the seed was the Word? That's, that's pretty commonly taught, isn't it? That the seed is flung out there on the soil and some of it, unfortunately, happened to find its way onto the wayside. And the wayside... All right, I'll tell you what. Uh, what have you heard about the wayside? I mean, what have you been taught about the wayside? What about it? That's it. Why is it hard packed? No, no, I didn't say that. I didn't say that why is it? Why is it? Um, tra- people trampled it on it. You know, you know, got a path through the, wind, the fields, and people have been walking on it for years. And it's so hard packed, and now, and and so that hard ground is representing what? Hard hearts. And the word of God was flung at it, and what happened to it? Rejected it. It what? Incapable of penetrating. Alright, all right, at least, all right, here's my, here's, here's the $64,000 question. Okay, all of these inane contributions of yours, um, that's just a joke. Um, tell me this, we've already agreed on, on soil number four. How about soil number one? What kind of person is being described by soil number one? Could we agree that then you have been taught in terms of that parable that soil number one is indeed describing a lost, unsaved man? You've been taught that. Have you? (laughs) Good. I'm glad you were taught that because I couldn't agree more. But here is what my antinomian friend, and I believe with most of my heart, is my brother in Christ. He told me that in the parable of the four soils, all four of those people were saved people. Now, what would that mean about the wayside hearer? No. No, there's something clearer in the parable. What would that mean? The word didn't have any, anything to do with it. I don't know what happened. It made no impact on him. It didn't get, it didn't get ingested in any way. It found no application, no uh, anything. And yet, that man is saved, according to the antinomian. Do you see, ladies and gentlemen... 
This is not, this is not dialogue to see if the Presbyterians or the Methodists are right. This has to do with a fundamental description and definition of who's a Savior and who's a lost person. And the Ananomian says, the Word of God can have absolutely none effect. None. Zero. It doesn't even, it didn't even penetrate the hardness of the heart. But that's okay. It's a saved man. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's what, that's what Paul is addressing. That is the position that he is addressing. An antinomian position that says, okay, I got this thing called grace down. And because I do, I can sin it up. Because at that point, it allows grace to abound and abound and abound. Now, gang, let me say something about that question. Um, and that is the question, let's go back to Romans 6. The question is, shall we, shall we, shall we continue to sin so that grace can abound? First of all, about this question, it is a very logical, understandable, normal question. I will go so far as to even say that the question is embedded. It is embedded in the doctrine of justification by faith. That is, if justification by faith is rightly dealt with, sooner or later somebody with a decent brain will say, Wait a minute. I hear it. I hear what you're saying. <laughs> Let me see if I got this straight. You're saying that my obediences or disobediences do not contribute one whit to my eternal standing. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Then the logical ramification of such a position, Apostle Paul, Dr. Young, or anybody else who teaches it, is then sin ought not matter. Because it doesn't have anything to do with how I stand, where I stand, where I'll finish up. To the point, ladies and gentlemen, that we can find a way to put witches in heaven. We can find a way to get a witch into heaven by holding on to such a horrible idea. And it's a horrible idea, all right, ladies and gentlemen, and you're going to see that from the Apostle Paul, not Jimmy Young. I mean, in fact, uh, maybe I shouldn't do this. I'm kind of leaping ahead. But you can see what Paul's, Paul's answer is. Certainly not. Oh, I wish, ladies and gentlemen, that you had just a smidgen of exposure to the Greek language. Because that's certainly not. There's a certain paucity to the English word, certainly not. Mama, can I have another glass of apple juice? Certainly not. Mama, can I go outside and play? You may certainly not. 
That's not what Paul said. That's not what Paul said, ladies and gentlemen. It is the strongest form of negation available in the Greek language. Meganoitoi. May it never be. I'm, I'm, I'm leaping ahead just a bit, but let me go back to the question which I want you to understand is a logical, predictable question. It is a part, ladies and gentlemen, it is a part and parcel of teaching the doctrine of justification by faith. If Paul is worrying, or no, if not worrying, if he is teaching what possible ramifications might grow out of the doctrine of justification by faith, and he says, it's this question, then ladies and gentlemen, it's this question. That is, we better expect this question. You've heard me say this before. If I am truly preaching the doctrine of justification by faith, I will always be open to such a charge. That is, ladies and gentlemen, if somebody does not charge me with antinomianism in my preaching, I'm preaching wrongly. I have not yet portrayed to you the beauties of, ju- of grace and justification by faith. Until and unless somebody says, wait a minute. Okay, I got you, Jimmy. I better go out. I mean, I can go out and sin as much as I like. Ladies and gentlemen, being asked that question is a key indicator that grace is being properly represented, not improperly. If I am teaching justification by works, nobody asks that question. Why would you ever ask a question like that if I'm teaching justification by works? But if I am teaching justification by grace through faith alone, and I am doing it properly, there is within the doctrine itself embedded this very logical question that comes as a result of understanding grace for the first time. Um, Guys, there is a sense in which Well, I don't want to encourage that in you. <laughs> let me. Let me our, our preaching. If our preaching in what we stand for as a church does not expose us to the um, to the charge and to this misunderstanding, then we're not preaching the gospel. Because the gospel of grace, ladies and gentlemen, is so glorious that it will always evoke some this kind of misunderstanding. I, I, I will say this and then we'll quit. A couple more things. Can you not see in the question our natural love of sin? There's somebody out there in the audience and they're listening to grace being preached and, and they say... Oh, <laughs> okay. I found a loophole. I can continue in my sin. Can you not see it in the question? The natural love of sin in the heart of men that they would ask such a question. 
there is in all of us, ladies and gentlemen, some kind of hope that we can be have a ticket to, heck, uh, to heaven stuck in our pocket and go on unchanged and go on and live any way we want to live. Um, but guys, this question, well, I should point this out too, uh, um, because this is where one of the this is where one of the misunderstandings come. This is why the chapters become so famous. L- l- notice, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in uh, in sin that grace may abound? I looked this up this afternoon because I wanted to make sure that I was telling it to you right. But ladies and gentlemen, you will notice we continue in sin. It doesn't say. Um, No, what the questioner is describing is a life of ongoing sin. Can I go on living in a lifestyle of sin? Um, It does not... We'll get to this, but it'll have to be next week. Uh, Does the Christian ever sin? I mean, uh, of course they do. But that's not the question he's asking. The question he's asking is that um, now that I've embraced grace and have a Savior whose righteous life means deliverance for me, can I go on continuing living ongoingly in sin? And that's what we have to answer next week, ladies and gentlemen. But oh, that God, excuse me, oh, that men would hear the gospel so richly and freely taught in this place that somebody will wonder, hmm, the way to teach that gospel over at Grace Evan is just going to encourage people to sin. And I think I told you, and about two years ago, I met with a man at Wendy's right up the street. And he told me he was leaving our church because the way that I presented the gospel was going to encourage people to sin. Sorry to see them go, but it was a rich affirmation that we're getting close. We're getting close to preaching the gospel in Pauline fashion. Our Father, we thank you for this rich message that is ours to bear, knowing that the question will always raise its ugly head. But Father, might it not make us shrink back from declaring the riches and the beauties of grace. Might our hearts be overcome by the great provisions made for us in this gospel that we are privileged to bear to the world. Thank you for my brothers and sisters who are interested in holy things and I pray that this will help them as they um, 
continue their pursuit of understanding righteousness. If I have spoken error, O God, might it not be remembered once people leave this room? But if it's been truth, by the application of your Holy Spirit, plant it. Plant it deep into the souls of each one of us. We ask it, of course, for Jesus' sake. Amen.